all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. Hi, I'm Dr. Susan Buttress, Professor of Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center and host of Southern Remedies Relatively Speaking. Join us as we explore issues that relate to you and your family. From mental health obstacles and family interactions to handling life disruptions, whatever the issue, let's try to figure it out together. You can listen live Tuesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. Thanks for joining us today. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm your host, Josie Bidwell, Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine and Nurse Practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today's show is really a request from you guys. After our show last week, I had lots of messages come in asking for additional healthy cooking swaps and substitutions and more information about air fryers as well. And so that's today's show. We're going to talk about healthier cooking techniques, how you can swap some different things in to maybe lower the added sugar or fat content of things, how you can utilize the air fryer um, for different techniques in the kitchen. So if you have a question or a comment for us, or if you've got a favorite way to maybe lighten up a recipe, I'd love to hear that today. And you can always email us fit at mpbonline.org. So you may be thinking, why do I want to lighten anything up, right? Or why do I want to make substitutions? And really, that's up to your individual goals, right? If you're not trying to lose weight or work on any of your cardiometabolic risk factors, then you may not want to make any swaps, right? But if you're trying to get better control of your blood pressure or better control of your blood sugar or lose a little bit of weight, then making some substitutions uh, can help with that. Or if you've got an allergy, right? There are a variety of different reasons that people look for dairy-free cooking or egg-free cooking or reduced sugar. Um, And it's usually largely to fit a, a dietary pattern that you have chosen either for health reasons or ethical reasons, um, or you've got an intolerance or an allergy to something. And products have come a long way over the past several years. And we've learned more and more about how we can swap things out to help address and meet those needs. So we'll start with kind of talking about um, kind of dairy-free, egg-free reductions and things. And so when we're talking about dairy... There, uh, it's largely used in baking products a lot. There are also other uh, ways that you can use dairy, of course, in your uh, cooking and eating, and we can talk about some of those swaps as well. Um, but dairy is often a big part of baked goods, uh, largely with butter, um, and then of course with milk, sour cream, cream cheese, those types of things. And one of the the good news about that is there are some really good. 
uh, swaps for that that still bake up well. Um, if you know me, you know that I love to bake um, and was a uh, kind of had a, a, a side gig as a professional baker for a while. And one of the most fun things that has happened since I have transitioned to um, a plant predominant way of eating is figuring out how to recreate those same flavors and textures in baked goods without using animal-based products. So um, thinking about how we do that, let's kind of start with the butter, right? And think about why we're adding butter to a particular uh, recipe or um, or dish that we are preparing, right? Because there are numerous uh, plant-based varieties of butter. And I often get asked if they are quote unquote healthier than regular butter. And I usually always answer that with, well, that depends on what your definition of healthier is. Uh, Because from a a calorie standpoint, they're going to be pretty comparable, right? And they're also both uh, solid at room temperature, which would indicate a degree of um, saturated fat being in them, right? We've talked on the show before about Things being um, solid at room temperature are more saturated fats, and things at, that are liquid at room temperature are more unsaturated. And so butter, uh, while it may soften up at room temperature, does not turn to pure liquid unless it is July in Mississippi, and then it might do that for you. Um, and saturated fats are largely in animal-based products. And so you may be thinking, well, Josie, how does that plant-based butter get um, solid? At, at room temperature. And if you flip that package over, which I encourage you to do on all of your products when you're trying to make a, a health decision about them, see what's in it, right? And a lot of times uh, the, the plant-based alternatives for butter will be uh, coconut oil or palm oil. And those are the two plant-based sources of saturated fat. And so from a heart health standpoint, it's probably not any better than the butter, right? So what I try and think about is, can I replace this with something else that would be less on the saturated fat scale and still be dairy-free? If the recipe is calling for a melted butter, right, or a melted coconut oil, then I think about the fact that it is asking me for to add this fat in a liquid form, right? So... A lot of times you can just start with the things that already come in liquid form. So uh, an oil would come already liquid. So if it's asking for a melted ingredient, um, then you can usually probably swap in um, an oil for that. Now, oil is still added fat, still going to add calories and all those different kinds of things, but we're not going to be as saturated in that particular component, right? Uh, And then... I usually also just start to decrease the solid fat if it has to stay solid, like if you're making a frosting or something like that that has to stay solid, and just use less of that um, butter or that non-dairy butter overall. And there's a lot of kind of hot debate about whether we should be eating dairy or whether we shouldn't be eating dairy, and especially when it comes to butter, um, of the notion that we shouldn't be eating enough of it that it matters that much, right? We want to think about how we, um, how much added fat we're adding into our diet. Um, but one of the more hotly debated 
things around dairy is its fat content, right? And about half of the fat that occurs in dairy is of the saturated fat variety, which has largely been linked to increases in heart disease and stroke and those kinds of things. And then there's the debate about whether we should just do non-fat or low-fat dairy or whether we should do full-fat dairy and all of those different kinds of things. And again, it all boils down to what your goal is and what you're looking at Um, in terms of bone health. uh, Dairy can be a great source of calcium. Um, It can actually, um, in terms of heart health, um, can actually show some benefit to folks as well. When we get over into increased cancer risk, in particular increased prostate cancer risk, um, there's a little bit more robust evidence that uh, shows more of a link with dairy consumption and prostate cancer. Um, So if you're looking for ways to back down on dairy, right, if you really enjoy regular milk on your cereal, then think about how you might reduce dairy in some of your other products. And when it comes to cooking, soy milk is my my preference and my choice for cooking because it stands up to the heat very well. Um, If you've ever put almond milk in your coffee, you may have noticed that it curdled a little bit and looked a little unappetizing. It's still fine to drink, um, but it just doesn't hold up to that heat quite as well um, where soy milk uh, will. So I swap that in um, all of my baked goods uh, for wherever the dairy milk is. I will swap a soy milk in there. And what if your recipe calls for buttermilk, right? Is there a plant-based alternative for the buttermilk, right? Well, I Even when I ha- ate dairy, I did not make a habit of keeping buttermilk in the house. Now, that's different than uh, my grandmother. She always had buttermilk in the house because she was always making cornbread, and it was delicious cornbread. But I don't traditionally do that very much, so I never had that. You can turn your regular milk, whether it is cow's milk, sheep's milk, goat milk, or any of the plant-based alternatives like soy, almond, um, cashew, into buttermilk by adding some acid to it and letting it sit for a little bit of time. So usually a couple of teaspoons of lemon juice or white vinegar, apple cider vinegar added to any of those, and you let them kind of hang out for about five minutes on the counter, and you'll notice that they kind of start to separate. Um, And that's the proteins in there kind of congealing, right? But it also gives that bite and that acid taste that buttermilk is known for. And if you're baking, it also helps to kind of start that chemical reaction with your baking soda and your baking powder to give a puff or a leavening agent to um, to that baked good. You can also look for um, swaps for things like um, sour cream. Um, if you're still looking at um, a dairy substitution on that, then a Greek yogurt is a great sub in there. If you're looking for a plant-based choice, then your soy, coconut, almond, any of those yogurts is a great um, addition to that particular recipe and usually holds up well and gives you very similar results to its dairy containing um Uh, partner that it had there. Um, That's also uh, a good time to kind of give a plug for things like yogurt. Um, Yogurt is fermented, right? It's got little um, uh, added bacteria uh, in there. And that fermented product is linked to better health outcomes and things, reductions in heart disease risk and, and a healthier gut microbiome. And so if you're 
still eating dairy and you plan to continue eating dairy, think about how you're getting those dairy sources and consider making one of those servings something like a yogurt um, that has that fermented process that is going to give you just more bang for your buck in terms of nutritional benefit there. You're listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit on MPB Think Radio. I'm Josie Bidwell, nurse practitioner at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. And today we're talking about healthier cooking techniques and swaps that you can uh, try out in your recipes if you're looking for ways to reduce things in your diet or maybe make your um, recipes a little bit lighter or healthier. If you have a question or comment for us, and if there's something that you've tried and has worked well for you, I'd love to hear it. Um, You can always email Email us as well, fit at mpbonline.org. All right, before we jump into oil, which I feel like is going to be a um, a lengthier discussion, I want to talk about eggs. And we, we had a caller last week who actually called and asked about um, ways to swap things in. And we talked about different egg substitutes and and, and different things. But I want to spend a little bit more time on the concept of eggs in the diet, right? Um, it's probably one of the most hotly debated and contested things that you see about whether eggs are good for you or not. And it goes right along with the the argument about whether cholesterol from a dietary standpoint is is bad for you or not. And, and you know, I usually don't like the word bad for you. Um, But, you know, does it have health consequences? And as nutrition research and and cardiovascular research has has grown and developed over the years, there appears to be less impact from a dietary cholesterol standpoint to overall cholesterol numbers for the average person, right? Now, if you're already dealing with cholesterol problems and you're having trouble getting your cholesterol and in particular your bad cholesterol or your LDL cholesterol under control, then reducing or being very intentional about your dietary sources of cholesterol is likely an important strategy, right? So where do eggs fall in that? Well, each egg, and I'm talking about a whole egg, has about 200 milligrams of uh, cholesterol. So what does that mean? Well, you know, largely we've advised folks to try and keep their dietary cholesterol under about 300. Uh, And so spending 200 of that on one egg is a lot, right? If you're trying to limit your dietary sources of cholesterol. And eggs are one of those foods that is, that are very frequently enjoyed for breakfast, right? And I'm not telling you that you have to stop those, but we do want to think about how they come and what they come with, right? A scrambled egg with, you know, a whole wheat tortilla and some salsa and some veggies is very different than, um, you know, two or three fried eggs with bacon and cheese and toast and butter and jelly in terms of your overall nutrient intake and the overall impact that that's going to have on your heart health and, uh, you know, your cholesterol levels and your blood sugar and those different kinds of things. So if you really enjoy um, having an egg for breakfast, we talk about how we how we pair that, right? Maybe we lean more towards that that first breakfast that I talked about, right? Or if we really want uh, an over medium egg, then maybe we also don't have the bacon and the cheese along with it because that's just going to be a lot of saturated fat and a lot of cholesterol kind of at one whop. Um, and if you're listening, and you're like, I'm not going to do any of that. I'm going to keep eating it the way I'm going to eat it. Well, then let's think about 
other swaps for eggs that you might not miss at all, right? And that can often be in recipes and in baking. Um, Baking calls for eggs a lot, as well as um, some of the different dessert uh, functions that you'll see, like meringues and those types of things. And that's where there are some really good um, swaps that that you can swap in there. Um, We talked about ground flaxseed last week, and I'll re-mention that as well. So in baked goods, uh, you can uh, swap an egg with ground flax. And so um, a tablespoon of ground flaxseed mixed with three tablespoons of water equals one egg. Um, Now you do need to mix that and let it sit for a little bit. So when I'm baking and something calls for two eggs, um, I'll usually do two tablespoons of ground flax and six tablespoons of water, put it in a little dish and let it sit on my counter while I mix up the other things. And when it gets gloppy, which is a very technical baking term, um, when it gets a little gloppy, then it is ready and it's acting as your binding agent. I've also used that when um, you're making like... um, like fritters or, or patties, um, you know, the, the famous um, salmon croquette usually has an egg binder in it or a meatball, something like that. Um, I swap eggs in for that. I make a mean um, no crab cake that is not made with crab, but it's made with hearts of palm that you dice all up and it gives you that that flavor and that taste. But again, that flaxseed is a great um, binding agent there. You can also do the same thing with ground chia seeds with the same proportions. So a tablespoon of ground chia and three tablespoons of water will give you uh, roughly one egg. Uh, We also had a question last week about um, fruit purees and can those be used in place of eggs? And they can. Um, You can use applesauce. I do recommend unflavored and unsweetened applesauce when you're swapping those in to your recipes um, because a lot of them do have added sugar in there and then you're not in control of how much sweetness you add. Right. So if, if all you have is sweetened applesauce and you use it, um, you may want to think about reducing your other added sweetener that you have because you may just not need as much. Um, but you can also add in mashed up banana. About half of a banana um, will give you an egg. Um, half of a ma- mashed avocado will also give you that same kind of binding um, uh, content. As well as, um, back to that applesauce, it was a quarter of a cup. I don't think I mentioned that is what you uh, sub out for an egg there. And then what if you just need uh, an egg white? Um, Like if you're making a meringue. We mentioned it last week, and um, I did get a comment um, through Facebook. Somebody was like, really? The, the liquid off a can of chickpeas? And and yes, um, I did not make it up. It is a term called aquafaba, um, and it works beautifully for whipping into wherever you would whip um, an egg white. So um I made um, plant-based Mississippi mud brownies um, for a potluck where I did black bean brownies. And then the traditional kind of marshmallow fluff that you would have on top of um, or swirled into Mississippi mud brownies. Uh, Marshmallows are made usually from whipped egg whites with lots of sugar um, or um, syrup folded into them. So I used aquafaba to do that and nobody knew. And I actually wound up calling them... um, uh, two bean brownies because they were made with black beans and then the marshmallow was made with uh, the, the liquid from um, a chickpea. Uh, and so there are varieties of ways that you can do that and sub that out. Anytime I crack open a can of chickpeas, I actually just 
drain the liquid off and I put it in a mason jar and stick it in the fridge and it will last in there for a couple of days. And I use that anywhere that I would normally use uh, an egg white uh, in terms of, of whipping and adding to things. You can make lovely mousses that way by whipping that and folding it into uh, melted chocolate, um, that type of stuff. So it's a wonderful dessert um, dessert replacer there. So again, thinking about where you where you spend spend your calories and spend your fat calories and, and those types of things. There are ways that you can lessen up your baked items to still be able to enjoy that way you traditionally like your egg. Um, I will also give a plug for um, tofu right now, which is often a heated topic. People either love tofu, they hate tofu, or they're scared of tofu. They're like, what the heck is tofu? Um, and it is a soybean product. Um, but when you crumble it up, it makes a great substitution for like scrambled eggs, especially if you're putting it in a burrito or a wrap um, and adding other yummy things in there. Um, you just press that tofu to get some of that extra water out, crumble it up, and then spice it up with however you would like to spice it. My favorites um, are black pepper and garlic and a little bit of turmeric, um, which gives it that yellow color um, so that you can, uh, so that it has a similar appearance to scrambled eggs. And then also, if you're really, really trying to replicate that flavor, a little pinch of what we call black salt um, has that egg flavor to it, that kind of sulfur flavor that will be a great addition to your breakfast scramble there. All right, we have a caller on the line, so we'll hop over to Fluent and say good morning to Chris. How can we help you? Hi, I I was hearing about your two bean brownies. Yes. I was trying to find out what sweetener did you use? In that particular recipe, I used maple syrup. Um, as a, a sweetener, a little bit lower on the glycemic index than straight, um, you know, table sugar. Um, and you can actually use a little bit less of it because it's a little bit sweeter. Uh, and so it, you know, it worked great in that particular recipe because it was a very loose battered um, recipe. Okay, that sounds wonderful, and they, they sound delicious. Thank you so much, and enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, absolutely, you as well, and thank you so much for giving giving me a call today. And sweeteners are an interesting uh, interesting topic, and we're definitely going to touch on those. Um, I want to touch a minute on um, on the oil again before we dive into sweeteners, and we will cover sweeteners when we come back from the break. But um, when we're talking about oils, I want you to keep in mind um, that oil-free and fat-free are not the same thing. Hey, that's an important distinction to make when you're looking at recipes and when you're trying to make swaps, that oil-free does not mean fat-free. Okay? And what do I mean by that? Well, there are added fats, right, that we add to things, and then there are naturally occurring fats, right? If you use avocado to replace some egg in your recipe, avocados are a high-fat food, right? So we are adding fat to that particular recipe. Um, it is not refined fat, and it ha comes with a bunch of other stuff with it, you know, different vitamins and minerals and fiber and those kinds of things that are beneficial for us. Um, but when you see a recipe that is written as oil-free, that does not necessarily equate to fat free. The same deal if you're using peanut butter in something, which is a great way to add in. Um, it's actually how I make the crumble that I put on the top of like my apple crumble or berry crumble. Um, and I, you know, it's a, a, a no oil crumble, but it is not a fat free 
crumble because I am using peanut butter in that to give that good mouthfeel, the good sticky component that we have to that, um, and a nice um, browning effect that you have with different kinds of things. So I feel like we get that messed up a lot when we're talking about Um, cooking and that, you know, when we are replacing oil, we may not necessarily be replacing fat. So that's always something to to keep in mind as where the source of those fat calories are coming from. And are they an added fat or a naturally occurring fat? And we want to try and lean toward those naturally occurring um, fats as much as we can because they are a better nutrient package meaning they usually have vitamins and minerals and fiber and other things, you know, especially if it's plant foods, you're going to come with some antioxidants um, that are good for um, inflammation and those types of things. The same can be said for uh, sweeteners, right? There is added sugar and naturally occurring sugar and sugar-free recipes usually don't mean no sugar. They mean no added sugar. And that's a topic that I want to explore a little bit more um, and how that impacts your blood sugar. And we've been talking about ways to swap ingredients in your recipes to lighten them up a little bit um, or ways to, to swap out things so that you can continue to enjoy the foods that you really, really love and are really hanging on to. All right. So Uh, Sugar and fat and the difference between added or naturally occurring, we talked about before the break. Um, When it comes to oils, right, I gave you a couple of my favorite substitutions, in particular using uh, peanut butter in uh, my crumble topping uh, to give that brown crunchy uh, topping that we have there. But what about if we're not baking? What about if we're cooking, right? Um, Well, we usually use oil in two preparations of, of cooking, right? We either fry something or we saute something. And that is largely where oil comes into play. And when you fry, you can deep fat fry where you got that big old vat of um, oil that you submerge something in completely. You can kind of pan fry or shallow fry where you have just an inch or so of oil in the pan that you're, you're cooking in. And then you can have sauteing where you usually start with just a, you know, a little, um, little sheen of oil in the pan and saute actually means to jump. And so when you think about kind of stirring your vegetables and, and things around in the pan and making them kind of hop around in that pan, um, is, is where sauteing comes into place. And each one of those has a, 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 reason why people do it largely the the deep fat fry or the shallow fry is to get something crispy and crunchy on the outside um, and I'll talk about air fryers in a little bit um, in and how that can kind of help replicate that situation um, and there's not other than the air fryer right there's not kind of a better substitute for that frying right like you can't use water to fry in that's boiling okay um, but you can use water for sauteing Right. And so often when I'm working with people and they ask me about oil, I'll say, well, what are you intending to use it for? Right. Is it something that you're um, trying to brown or crisp? Is it something that you're trying to get the good taste of? Or is it just something that you're using to keep something from sticking in a pan? Right. And that's a good way to kind of parcel that out. And when we're sauteing, largely what we're doing is trying to keep our food from sticking. Right. So that it continues to jump and move around in the pan. And 
Oil is a great way to do that, but if you're looking for ways to, to cut back on calories, right, because every tablespoon of oil, regardless of what it is, is 120 calories and 14 grams of fat. So you can take something that's relatively low-cal and low-fat and uh, make it not so by using um, a, a fair amount of oil to saute in. So I am a big fan of water or stock sautéing, um, and that is a great way to get the same um, flavor profile from your sauteed meals without adding that extra fat. And so how, how does one do that? Well, um, you start with your pan kind of over medium heat, right? Not blistering, but over medium heat and throw throw your veggies in there, right? And let them sit for a little bit. They start to get a little bit of kind of brownness around the outside of it. Uh, and then as they kind of start to maybe right before they start to stick, just go ahead and put a couple of tablespoons of water or stock or wine if that's what you have on hand and want to enjoy. And that helps unstick it, helps to soften those vegetables. And then as that liquid starts to evaporate out, if they're if they're not done to your likeness, you just add a little bit more in there. And in the grand scheme of things, especially if you're sauteing these vegetables to be part of a sauce or a soup or a stew or any of those kinds of things, you're not going to miss that oil right there. You're not going to gonna miss the flavor of that. Um, all you're going to miss is miss out on adding those calories in there, right? Now, if you're making a, uh, a salad dressing, maybe, or you're drizzling something on top of a finished vegetable where you will taste that particular oil, that's where I would spend my oil calories, right? Now, there are, are tons of wonderful oil-free salad res, uh, salad dressing recipes out there. I make a, a mean Caesar salad dressing um, using hummus and Dijon mustard and lemon juice and a little bit of, of water to make that dressing there. Um, but if you're a fan of, you know, an oil and vinegar dressing, then spend your, spend your oil there and not on sauteing things, Okay. Um, if you've tried that, I would love uh, to hear how it turned out for you there. Um, I don't often keep boxes of stock in my um, my pantry or my fridge, but I do keep um, low-sodium um, bouillon cubes. And so sometimes I will dissolve those and use those in recipes as well because it's all about trying to add layers of flavor to things um, without necessarily adding more salt, more fat, more sugar. All right, so on to sugar. Um, and how we, uh, the difference between added sugar and sugar-free, right? If it is a baked good, right? So a pie, a cookie, a cake, um, it is, it's not going to be sugar-free, right? It may be no added sugar, but it's not going to be sugar-free. Even with fruit, right? Fruit has naturally occurring sugar in it. So when we add fruit to things, it's not sugar-free. It would just be no added sugar sugar. And I get asked a lot what my favorite um, kind of sugar replacers are. And we had the caller a minute ago who asked what sweetener I used in that um, brownie recipe, and that was maple syrup. Um, when you're looking at what to replace things with, again, just like when we were talking about the butter replacer and whether the recipe was calling for something in solid form or whether it was melted or liquid, the same has to happen in terms of sweeteners, right? If something is calling for granulated sugar, which is your table sugar, right? It's not going to be a one-to-one -one swap with a liquid sweetener like maple syrup or honey, right? Um, doesn't mean you can't use it, but it probably means we're going to have to decrease the amount of that or increase the amount of our other dry ingredients to take into, a, 
to account the fact that that is a, a liquid sweetener um, there. Um, a lot of times people ask me, well, is maple syrup or honey better for you than sugar? And again, I'm always going to ask you, what are you using it for and what are your goals, right? Um, glycemic index is a term that gets thrown out a lot, but in essence, it's kind of the impact that that particular food item will have on or could have on your um, blood glucose, right? And so table sugar, traditional old table sugar, um, has a glycemic index of about 65, which puts it kind of in the moderate range, right? Um, and then the others, like maple syrup, is around 54, honey's around 50. Um, so so less on that, but the amount matters. More, even more important than the simple glycemic index is what we call the glycemic load. And that has to take into account how much of something it is, right? So it's the glycemic index times the serving size, basically. And so if you're using more maple syrup than you would use for the of the table sugar then that's not necessarily going to be better for your blood glucose okay Um, it is serving size dependent but one of my favorite ways to sweeten things which i think is vastly overlooked is the humble date okay Um, and what is a date well it's a, a wrinkly dried fruit okay um and it's maybe one of those things that you've would never consider picking up at the grocery store. But if you have access to them and you're curious, I highly recommend them, right? Again, we're talking about a nutrient package. And table sugar is just sugar, right? That's all you're getting with it. With something like a date or any of your other fruits, a mashed banana um, uh, is a great other kind of way to add sweetness to things. You're getting the fiber from these things and you're getting um, the the vitamins and minerals that come along with it. So how do you use a date? Well, there are date sugars out there, but again, that's going to be a much more refined out product, right? It's usually the date has been turned into date syrup and then the liquid evaporated from that to give you that granular substance. And so I don't routinely pick a date sugar over a table sugar because they're pretty comparable um, in in my book in terms of um, overall health because they're an added sugar after all. Um, But taking a date and one stuffing it is one of my favorite Christmas candies in the world. I make it every year. I think Kevin has even made it before. Um, and it it replicates a turtle because dates have a very sticky, gooey consistency to them that is very reminiscent of caramel. And so taking a date and making sure it is pitted, okay, that is very important. They come pitted and not pitted. And so if you get a not pitted date, make sure you take the pit out because it's going to have a hard like seed in the middle of it that will not be good. Your dentist will not be happy if you bite into that. Take that pit out and then you stuff it with whatever you want to stuff it with. My favorite is either an actual nut like a walnut or a pecan. Or you can put peanut butter on the inside of that, too, um, or any of the nut butters that you like, and then dip it or drizzle it in a dark chocolate. And that is just a wonderful um, dessert. I keep them, I make them up and keep them in the fridge all year round, too. And it's a perfect one or two bite uh, dessert after dinner. Kevin looks like he's getting ready to say something about those dates. Yes, I did try that recipe, Josie. They were really very good. That was the first time I've ever tried a date. And I think the fact is, as you said, it's quite a wrinkly kind of looking thing. And <laughs> yeah. So I think I was afraid more of the uh, appearance, but they were very tasty. And one little tip I'll have for dates, uh, I've had a couple of recipes and 
one time I tried to cut up the, the dates with a knife and it got sticky and, and that sort of thing. And so the next time I found a tip was to just use some kitchen scissors. Oh, that's a good one. That's yeah. a good one. Um, I also really like using my food processor for the dates because I'll turn it um, into like a like a caramel paste almost. Um it, there are several varieties of dates. There's medjool dates, um, which are the sweetest variety, but they're also the most expensive variety. Um, so I don't buy those as often. Um, I just buy um, just whatever they have on the, the, the shelf that says pitted dates because I'm not about trying to pit them all either. That I don't have time for that. Um, and those are going to be a little drier. And so before you um, puree them or if you're trying to mix them into your oatmeal or that kind of stuff, soaking them in some warm water will help soften them up a whole lot. So that'll help in your your blending or your chopping or whatever you're doing with those particular kinds of things. Um, but I take those soaked dates and the, the water that I soak them in, which is just usually, you know, like a half a cup of water, and toss them in my food processor and blitz them up and they make a thick creamy caramel sauce uh, and one of my favorite ways to do it is to take a pie crust um, kind of go ahead and pre-bake it a little bit uh, and then smear that that date caramel over the top of it and then put a thinly sliced apple on top of that and pop it back in the oven to cook the rest of the way it's really quick much quicker than um, baking a whole apple pie uh, and just really really lovely and delicious it also works well with um, with puff pastry to be able to do that well and so a lot of folks ask about how you you know if a, if a recipe calls maybe for a, a cup of sugar you know how much date should I use for that and again it's going to depend on what variety of date you have there but I usually recommend starting with about half the weight of that or half the volume of that of dates and taste it and see if it's sweet enough. And if it's not, then add a couple of more in there. And there's actually been some really cool research lately about the impact of dates on blood sugar and looking at people that have diabetes and what that does to their blood sugar with dates. Now, all of these studies were done um, in Asia, so I don't have one here in the U.S., but it did show that it really did not impact their blood sugar, and actually some folks had a lower fasting plasma glucose. So that's really interesting to think about there. Thanks for joining us today here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. We've been talking about recipe swaps to kind of lighten up your recipe or um, replace things in your recipes altogether. Um, in this last segment of the show, we're going to spend a little bit of time talking about air fryers uh, because I did get a specific request from a listener last week to talk more about air fryers. And I want to spend this segment talking a little bit about what an air fryer can do and some of the most common things I see um, go wrong with an air fryer. Um, we The word fryer imparts the fact that you would think you could only use it to fry in, but that is not the case. Um, you can uh, get similar results to um, grilling things in the air fryer, steaming things, roasting things, and also baking in there, right? An air fryer is, in essence, a little convection oven, right? And so a convection oven... In a traditional oven, right, you, the heat source uh, is coming down from the top of the oven, especially if it's an electric oven. And so you're getting, um, that's why things get brown on the top very quickly, but may not cook all the way through in a time frame, uh, recommended time frame. Convection ovens, um, the air circulates and blows around the food. That's why um, convection oven cooking time is usually less than what a traditional recipe in a traditional oven would be for. And so an air fryer is just a little, a little 
tiny countertop one of those, right? So anything that you could use a convection oven for, you can usually swap in for an air fryer as well. Um, some of the things that I go that I see go wrong with air fryers is not getting a big enough one. Right. Um, so they come in different sizes. And if you're if you're uh, an empty nester or a college student or you, know, you just live alone, you may think, well, I only need the small one. Right. But if you overcrowd the basket of the air fryer, things are not going to get as crispy and delicious. Okay? They're going to steam more and be more soggy. So if you're truly trying to get that crisp and that browning replacement that you would get from traditional frying, you need more space in there. So if you've got the budget for it and you've got the counter space for it, getting the bigger size is usually always the way to go there. Um, not seasoning the basket is also something that I see um, happen more. We want, just like you'd season your cast iron skillet to help kind of keep it nonstick, seasoning the basket is um, a good thing to do as well. And I just usually, the first time you use it, rub on a little oil in that basket and let it run for a couple minutes to kind of season that up. Um, but don't use cooking spray, like that comes in a can, Right. So like your your Pam spray, your aerosolized spray, um, it can actually degrade the coating on your air fryer basket and make it start to peel and flake off and, and need replacing much sooner. So it doesn't mean that you have to, to pour oil on your food. You should need much less or no oil in the air fryer. But if something is breaded, like if you're doing chicken strips in there and they're breaded and you want that breading to get brown, you are going to need a little bit of fat on the outside of that breading to help crisp it up. Um, so they actually they make um, kitchen sprayers that are just glass bottles that have a different type of pump in them. So that they're not the commercial um, aerosolized can that you just add your own oil to. And that's a great way to kind of um, spritz on there or use a basting brush uh, and just kind of paint the oil on there a little bit. Right. But try to avoid using the um, the. Uh, the aerosol spray and the other is cooking at the incorrect temperature or the incorrect amount of time Uh, more and more packages are starting to get um, air fryer instructions on the back of them you know if you're heating up some tater tots in there it'll tell you this is what the air fryer temperature and time is but a lot of them are not and the air fryer can be great for heating up um, food or for crisping up packaged products Um, but usually you're going to need about 30% um, less on the temperature, Um, especially when um, baking, you're usually going to lower the temperature by about 30%. So I don't know about you, but when I was growing up and we were, everything went in the oven at 350 degrees. Like, I don't know if that's because that's the default when you cut the oven on or if just everything truly cooks at 350 degrees, but that's what it was. And so if you're used to baking your muffins or your brownies or those kinds of things uh, at 350 degrees, if you're going to do it in the air fryer, which you can, right, you're of course going to need a much smaller cake pan or a much smaller muffin um, tin to do that, then you are going to need to reduce out that um, that temperature by about 30% to do that. Okay? Um, same deal with time. Okay? Um, if you're re, uh, you know heating up, we'll go back to those tater tots, right, in the air fryer, um, whatever the time on the back of the package is for that, it's also about 30% 
less um, in the air fryer. So it, the, that convection nature of the machine allows you to cook quicker and cook at a lower temperature and get the same results. Um, so if you're trying to adapt a recipe, I usually err on the side of of uh less time and then you can always add more to it and one safety feature i must recommend is that if you are cooking raw meat in your air fryer please and also invest in a meat thermometer right to make sure that you get the internal temperature of that meat um, to a uh, safe temperature prior to consuming there especially when the times are a little bit different All right, guys, we're all out of time for today. Thank you for listening to Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. Our wonderful producer is Kevin Farrell, and the podcast producer is Jermaine Flood. Southern Remedy is produced in conjunction with Mississippi Public Broadcasting and the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thanks to our great listeners here on Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.